Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Blake Jackson, and he'll be answering your questions on fly fishing central Wyoming. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Blake a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill in your name and email address in the form on the right side of our web pages, and we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you'd share our podcast. And when you do, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing and hashtag FlyFishing. In fact, if you have a moment, do it right now. We've got a couple links on our homepage. Uh, it'll make it easy for you. And uh, we'd appreciate it if you share our activity here on Ask About Fly Fishing. I also want to let you know about a new social media app that I and many of the guests I've had on Ask About Fly Fishing are using for conversations on fly fishing. It's called Clubhouse. We've started a club called the Fly Fishing Club. And in that club, we're hosting a room called Fly Fishing Q&A every Thursday night at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Clubhouse is like a conference call where people can talk with each other live. I've invited the top fly fishers that have been in on my shows to join in the conversations. If you're a member of Clubhouse, follow me on Clubhouse and you'll be notified when I open the rooms. If you're not a member, then you need to join. To join, you need to have an iPhone and it's not available for Android yet. And you need to be invited. If you need an invitation, just contact me at roger at askaboutflyfishing.com. Again, roger at askaboutflyfishing.com. And let me know you want an invitation. I'll help you get one. Uh, again, we'll be hosting Fly Fishing Q&A on Clubhouse every Thursday at 7 p.m. Mountain. Hope to see you there. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted. And it's the property of the Knowledge Group Think Doing Businesses Ask About Fly Fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Blake Jackson about fly fishing central Wyoming. The Colorado River at Lee's Ferry is called by some the world's largest spring creek. It's a massive, clear-running tailwater fishery that runs 15.5 miles from the base of the Glen Canyon Dam to the upper reaches of the Grand Canyon. At times, it gives the impression of being not one or two, but a series of parallel spring creek-like waterways. The fishing is great, and the scenery is gorgeous. Lee's Ferry Anglers provides professional guide service to this outstanding rainbow trout fishery, as well as food and lodging at Cliff Dwellers Restaurant and Lodge. See for yourself why Lee's Ferry is on every fly fisher's must-do list. Visit leesferryanglers.com. Again, that's leesferryanglers.com, or call them at 800-962-9755. That's 800-962-9755. Before we introduce Blake, I'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. And for our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. But now you have two chances to win in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Blake's section that says register for our free drawing. Just click on that link, fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. 
We'll also be giving away a dozen of Blake's hand-picked flies for the areas that we talk about tonight. So here's how you can win Blake's dozen flies here. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. The question, it could be a one- or two-part question. I don't know until I figure it out during the show. But well, the question will be something that Blake and I talk about during the show. And you must submit your answer along with your name and location using the text box on our homepage. So listen closely. And this is the same text box that you can ask questions in during the show. So listen closely, take notes, type fast, and maybe you'll win that dozen of Blake's hand-chosen flies for Central Wyoming. Our guest tonight is Blake Jackson. Blake is co-owner and operator of the Ugly Bug Fly Shop and Crazy Rainbow Fly Fishing based out of Casper, Wyoming. Proudly, the Ugly Bug Fly Shop was awarded the 2014 Orvis Outfitter of the Year and is now a finalist for Outfitter of the Year Award again for 2021. Unbeknownst to many, Blake spends countless nights in the Ugly Bug Fly Shop creating a unique experience for all his current and future clients. His dedication to the sport of fly fishing and his ability to share it with others is unparalleled. Blake enjoys guiding Wyoming's great fisheries like the Miracle Mile, Gray Reef, Fremont Canyon, and local lakes. Often he is spotted pulling his flats boat around the local reservoirs chasing carp. He is presented at multiple shows, uh, sports shows, including the Great American Outdoor Show, ISE, Fly Fishing Show, and he enjoys presenting to local fly fishing groups about destinations, fly tying, and his love for Wyoming fishing. He's been featured on multiple TV shows airing on the Outdoor Channel, including the World Fishing Network, Pursuit, PBS, and others. Blake maintains close and lasting relationships with veteran groups and youth in his community. He selflessly makes time to volunteer each season so that those who really need it may enjoy a sport that may not otherwise be available to them. As a pro staff member of Ross Reels, R.L. Winston Flyrod, Scientific Anglers, He's an also an Orvis-endorsed guide, Sims Pro ambassador, and commercial fly tire. Blake is well-versed in every corner of the sport. He kind of does it all, and with a heart of a teacher, Blake has a special gift for sharing and coaching all things fly fishing. Blake, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Well, thanks so much for having me, Roger. It's great. Well, good. Good to have you, and uh, getting ready to really hit the season here full blast, huh? in the Rockies, so um, it's a good time to do a show and talk about Central Wyoming. So I'm excited, and anything to talk about getting out and going fishing always gets me excited, so, yeah, and especially something close to home, like Wyoming, so. Yeah, yeah, and I think probably most of your listeners will kind of agree, it seems like even nowadays, even more that, you know, people are kind of itching to get outdoors, right? A lot of us have been cooped up for for way too long, and it's uh, it's good to get outside and enjoy some fresh air and hopefully catch some fish. Yeah, it sure is. I don't know about Wyoming or if you know the stats up there, but I heard in Colorado that last year, 2020, they sold 70,000 more fishing licenses than they did in 2019, and I expect Wyoming had similar results, huh? Yeah, exactly. I don't know the exact number, but I heard 31% increase, so. I'm sure 31%. Wow. Pretty yeah. substantial number. Yeah. 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 So lots of new fly fishers potentially out there, which is great. And uh, we'll see what happens. Well, let's talk about central Wyoming. What, when you think of central Wyoming, I mean, you're out of the Casper area. What fisheries fall within that umbrella of central Wyoming in your mind? Yes. 
So Casper is pretty well right smack in the center of the state. And, and really it's the North Platte is the main fishery that runs through here, but we also do some, you know, quite a bit of guiding on the, the Wind River slash Bighorn River, which is, you know, about an hour and 15 minutes north of us. So primarily through the town of Thermopolis. So, you know, somewhat northwest of us. But, you know, maybe the easiest way to kind of approach it is to almost start at the state line and kind of move towards central Wyoming. We kind of focus below Seminole Reservoir, but kind of the easiest way to explain it would be the river itself runs north out of Colorado, crossing into the Wyoming, state of Wyoming, and crossing the state line, and and uh, merges with a couple of large tributaries, the Encampment River being the biggest one outside of Saratoga, Wyoming. And, and it's a great little fishery from, you know, the state line into the reservoir of Seminole, so as the river kind of runs north. But that stretch of river is, is a freestone fishery, meaning, you know, no dam, a free-flowing fishery. So it uh, often fishes pretty solid for a kind of a short window or a shorter window than what we have here on our tailwaters, you know, on the sections of the river with dams on it. So as it runs north and runs through those freestone stretches through Saratoga, it's a, it's a great little fishery and, and has all the kind of classic characteristics of a freestone with, you know, larger stone flies, salmon flies, golden stones, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It can be kind of difficult wade fishing at times because of some of the rocks, but it's a really a really unique fishery as well as the encampment there as it dumps in. And then it, it runs north, crosses I-80 interstate, and then uh, dumps into kind of the first reservoir in the series of many, which goes by the name of Seminole Reservoir. And then on the downstream side of Seminole is really where our operation uh, kind of focuses and starts. So the downstream side of Seminole, you have one other little dam. It's kind of a holding section. That dam would is called Cortez. And then downstream of Cortez is the Miracle Mile. So the Miracle Mile is okay. kind of the first section of the North Platte that we fish. Okay, good. Now, in that upper section up by Saratoga and so forth, is that uh, primarily wade fishing or is that floatable as well? It's both, yeah. It kind of depends on the time of year. So it's floatable usually. I mean, obviously every year is a little different with water flow, especially with it being a freestone stretch depending on how much snow came down there around the state line area. But generally it's floatable, if not you know most of what we would consider the fishing season from March until November. Some okay. of the lower stuff below the town of Saratoga, it can get a little shallow late in the summer, early in the fall. But all the upper stuff, around this town of Saratoga is always floatable. The wade fishing is, it's a great wade fishing river. It's a little bit more pocket water based, but kind of warning your listeners, it is kind of polished around rock <laughs> country. So you have to be Greased a little careful balls, about, right? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah, some studded uh, footwear and a wading staff or kind of, you know, take your time and move cautiously and slowly is, is a smart move. We had a question come in on the Internet from DB in San Diego, and he says, I've never heard anything about the North Platte above Miracle Mile to the Colorado border. And he's asking, is there walk and wading access on that part of the river, and is it worthwhile to fish? So why would one want to fish that area? What entices yeah. one to go there? I would say, yes, it is, is worthwhile. And there's a, quite a few public access points that are you know, uh, pretty easy to find on, uh, you know, the Wyoming Game and Fish website as well as uh, the Bureau of 
land management website, or obviously from a you know gazetteer map sort of thing that you can pick up at most of the local fly shops, including here at the Ugly Bug. But yeah, it, it's a great fishery. It gets really good uh, dray catches. It gets really good evening caddis, and then has all the classic kind of freestone characteristics of you know large stone flies, salmon flies, pats, rubber legs. You know, mm. my kind of go-to stuff up there is always, you know, Pat's rubber legs, the classic sort of prince nymph, bird's nest, hare's ears sort of stuff is always yeah. a, a great option. And, and the evening dry fly fishing can be great. And, the you know, the little town of Saratoga is kind of a gem. It's um, got some, you know, natural hot springs, cool hot springs there, a bunch of cool hotels. It's kind of a, you know, small, quaint mountain town and uh, easily accessible for, you know, a lot of, especially front range Colorado anglers, you can get there in an hour and a half, two hours, and kind of get away from some of the large crowds. So yeah, there's a fair, yeah. a fair bit of uh, national forests, so there's definitely plenty of opportunity as far as, uh, you know, public access to get out and about. Yeah, we stopped by there, well, not last year, year before last, coming back from a kind of a circular trip through Wyoming and Montana. And a friend of mine's son manages a cattle ranch just outside of Saratoga, so we stayed with him and fished some little tributaries there. We didn't fish the North Platte, but some little tiny tributaries off there and caught some pretty large browns in those little tributaries. I couldn't believe it. I mean, like, you know, like a 14-inch brown out of a creek that was, you know, I could almost jump across. So I was pretty impressed with that, that there were fish that size in these tiny little tributaries so yeah, yeah very neat the, place there's a ton of those little tributary creeks and then in all that national forest country it's got an abundance of wildlife you know lots of moose and, and really cool lakes and so there's a lot of room to explore it's a it's a yeah. really unique place yeah 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 if you could explain the wyoming laws regarding access to the river because you've got a certain situation that applies to all the places we're talking about here tonight in regards to what you can and can't do in Wyoming. So I just want to make sure people from out of state that are coming there realize what the, the laws are. So you, could you, you kind of explain how that works in Wyoming? Yeah. Yeah, so Wyoming is kind of unique. There's, you know, depending on the state you're in, some states, you know, Wyoming, Colorado, have similar water rights laws, but much different than Montana. So right. here in Wyoming, the landowner actually owns the riverbank and the bottom of the river. So anyone can float through a floatable river, and, you know, you can float through and, and fish from a boat or raft or whatever it may be, but in many cases you cannot touch bottom or get out and wade fish. So the landowner is actually owning, you know, the bottom, unlike Montana where inside the high water mark is basically considered public access, Wyoming is kind of the opposite, so... Landowners own the bottom, they own the banks. Obviously, if it's Bureau of Reclamation, Bureau of Land Management, or uh, state property, you can get out and wade fish and that sort of thing. But when you are floating through private land, you kind of have to be aware and be careful of the fact that you can't get out. You can't anchor your boat, and uh, you obviously can't get out on the bank and wade fish. So. Right, right. And unlike uh, Montana, you can't go into a public access and then just wander your way upstream or downstream from there across private land because, again, that's restricted there. So when you are at public access, you have to stay on public lands, basically. 
that correct? correct? Yeah, Yeah, that's correct. And, you know, the state has tried to make it much easier on the general public and people that are kind of new to the area or uh, don't quite know where those boundaries are at. So for most of the North Platte, as you float down the river, the public access is denoted on uh, the appropriate side of the riverbank that would be public by a blue sign meaning you're entering public water and a red sign on the bottom end of that public water meaning you're turning back into private. So if you kind of pay attention to the riverbanks, generally you can get a really good idea as to uh, what is private and what is public by those signs. Yeah, that's really nice to have that because I know here in Colorado, floating the Gunnison River, <laughs> I mean, it's every couple hundred yards it's switching up, and there is no signage at all. If you're not yeah. a guide, it's really difficult to know what, where you're at or what you're on. And it's kind of dicey, <laughs> you know, guessing at times if you're okay or not. So that's really nice that they have that signage. That's, I noticed that, too, last time I floated the Gray Reef up there, that those signs are really handy. Well, let's talk then about starting out with the Miracle Mile, since that's kind of the next stage from the area we've been talking about. And where is that in the state of Wyoming, so to speak, and how would you get there to fish? Yeah, so there's, it would be located about an hour from the town of Casper in a, you know, southwestern sort of direction. So remember, the river's running north out of Colorado, and then when it hits Seminole, it kind of takes an eastern turn once it exits Seminole and Cortez Reservoir. So it starts kind of heading east. So from here, we can take um, either Highway 487 or kind of go through the town of Alcova, and we go up and, you know, basically follow the river system upriver, go around the lake of Alcova Reservoir and up past Pathfinder and then drop in to uh, the Miracle Mile. But from the Colorado side, you can actually access it from the little town of Hannah or access it from the town of Medicine Bow. So there's you know, multiple different avenues to get in there. But once you get out there, it's, it's relatively remote, right? There's no uh, cell service. It's all public property owned by the uh, Bureau of Reclamation. So there's an abundance of camping locations that allow for camping up to 14 days free of charge, and you're, you know, allowed to float it, wade fish it, and kind of just enjoy the whole area. So you're kind of on the eastern side of the Seminole Mountain Range, but surrounded by multiple mountain ranges, surrounded by the Seminole Range on one side, the Shirley Range to the south, and then the Ferris Mountain Range kind of north of that towards the little town of Muddy Gap. But you're definitely kind of out there in the middle of nowhere. It's a, a beautiful okay. place, bighorn sheep running around, lots of, you know, lots of elk out in that country. Of course, lots of mule deer, antelope as well. So, and that's, that's um, so the Miracle Mile section is a tailwater fishery there. It is a tailwater fishery, and, and often kind of misconstrued. Everyone assumes it's because of the name that it was a. It is only a mile long, and then that's incorrect. It, the name actually came from Kurt Gowdy. He was the one that hmm. kind of ended up tagging at that. You know, he used to film multiple shows there of the American Sportsman when he when he recorded that. And initially, he kind of didn't want anyone to know where it was, so he made up the name the Miracle Mile. But it it has enough traits that it's pretty obvious to anyone that's been there. You know, when they used to watch that show. 
they'd pick up on where he was at. So prior to Kurt Gowdy, it was really called the Cortez stretch of the North Platte. And then, of course, the general public and everyone else started calling it the Miracle Mile, and the name just kind of stuck. So it is a you know. uh, it is a tailwater fishery, but it it fishes very similar to, let's say, the Madison River. It has a larger elevation drop, gradient drop, mm-hmm. again, dealing with the greased bowling ball sort of scenario with rocks. And although it is a tailwater, it does get some salmon flies, some golden stones, because you kind of start right at the base of the Seminole Range. So it's kind of pine tree country, a pretty good canyon on the top end that's not necessarily floatable, but we put in right where the canyon basically ends and often float down river. And depending on the, the height of Pathfinder Reservoir at the bottom end, the float in length can vary anywhere from about seven miles long up to about nine and a half, ten miles long on an average year, depending on how full Pathfinder Reservoir is on the bottom side. Okay, okay. So it sounds like maybe you say like the Madison, so a lot of riffles and runs and riffles and runs kind of thing? Exactly. A lot of riffles and runs and little islands and good seams below the islands. Very pocket water based. And then as you move down and out of the canyon stretch further down river, once you get down three or four miles, it starts kind of opening up into a classic kind of, uh, you know, high mountain desert scenario where it gets a little shallower, it gets a little calmer, and the runs get a little longer and a little deeper. So it kind of has it all. It's got both the pocket water scenario. It's also got kind of the long, lazy, meandering S-curve sort of bends that the North Platte's kind of known for. Okay, okay. Now, is this, uh, can it, being a tailwater, is it, uh, can you fish it year-round? Is it seasonal? You can fish it year-round. It does stay open year-round. The issue often in the dead of winter is just getting out there. Most of the roads leading to the Miracle Mile are uh, dirt roads, and then uh, anyone that's somewhat familiar with uh, the west out here, especially that portion of of Wyoming, there's a lot of bentonite in that soil, which means it is <laughs> slippery and slick and uh, hard to stay on the road, and easily, you get stuck very easily, unfortunately, if uh, if a good storm rolls in or a lot of moisture rolls in. And because there's no services out there, it does go you know, unplowed and pretty well wild through the winter months. So generally, I would say the fishing season out there would be from March until the end of the year. Often are kind of January, February, those roads are kind of impassable to get out there. Okay, yeah, you don't want to get stranded out there, it doesn't sound like. Um, no, no, you uh, don't. Yeah, yeah. And what about the species there? Rainbows primarily or? Browns? Rainbows primarily. It is. It does have some really good brown trout, and it's got a unique kind of characteristic to it because it drops, you know, the bottom end of it drops into Pathfinder Reservoir. You have this ebb and flow of fish that come out of the reservoir and enter that river system. So let's say the percentage of rainbows versus brown trout is kind of an ever-changing thing. It primarily in the spring, through the summer months, it's primarily rainbow trout with about 8 to 9% brown trout population and the rest being rainbows, cut bows, and a few, you know, 1 or 2% straight cutthroat in that section of river. And then in the fall months, 
obviously the brown trout numbers go up quite substantially because you got a lot of the browns moving up out of the reservoir into uh, the river system, you know, preparing to spawn, spawning, and then kind of sticking around post-spawn as well before they move back down into the reservoir. So there must be some nice-sized fish then, some nice-sized browns coming up during that For sure. time. That's yeah. really what yeah. the, uh, and even in the spring, you know, we get obviously the rainbows doing the same thing. And then we also get a weird kind of push of fish that move up out of the reservoir May and June. And it's somewhat similar to an Alaska scenario where the suckers from the reservoir <laughs> come up into the Miracle Mile stretch to spawn. And uh, both the rainbows and brown trout follow those suckers in for the protein source of all those sucker eggs. Mm. Um, so you get a, you know influx of rainbows in the spring, and then a little bit of both, kind of later spring, early summer, and then a big push of uh, brown trout moving into the system in the fall. Yeah, yeah. Let me uh, take a quick break. I want to talk more about the Miracle Mile, but uh, we need to take a quick break. We'll come right back and continue our conversation on uh, the Miracle Mile in Wyoming. There are not many places in the world where you can fly fish for permit, tarpon, bonefish, and snook, all within a few miles of each other. But you can in Belize. When you fish with Charlie Leslie fly fishing, you're on a private island and are only minutes away from some of the finest fly fishing in Belize. You'll start out from Placencia and take just a 30-minute boat ride to your lodging on the island. And once you're there, you'll be fishing lagoons full of tarpon and targeting permit on the flats of Permit Alley. Bonefish and snook are ready for your cast as well. Charlie Leslie, with over 50 years of experience in the waters of Belize, his son Marlon Leslie and their other hand-picked guides know the local waters like no others. Book your next Belize adventure now with Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing. Visit charlielesliefly.fishing.com. Again, that's charlielesliefly.fishing.com or call 303-430-4634. That's 303 303- Four three zero four six three four. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Blake Jackson about fly fishing central Wyoming. If you'd like to ask Blake a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as we can on the show tonight. So let me just check here. So... We have one question came in here, David Myers, Morrison, Colorado, Blake. He's asking, and you can kind of talk ahead to this, too, if it makes sense, but he says, what are the best locations, techniques, and times of the year for walk wade opportunities on the North Platte? Sure. Yeah, that's kind of a somewhat of a loaded question, depending on the stretch that uh, we're talking about. So the, the Miracle Mile and the, I guess the Miracle Mile and Gray Reef really the early spring and kind of fall months post, you know, September 10th sort of time frame is really the best walk weight opportunity. And the biggest reason there is water flow. The water flow generally comes up somewhere mid-May-ish, depending on irrigation needs. So they do raise it up to, uh, you know, help all the farmers through the valley that are pulling irrigation water either out of the canal or that have water rights out of the river system. And when the water comes up, it makes uh, wade fishing in general a little more difficult. At times it can make, you know, the side channels that are generally too shallow. It now opens up some new wade fishing opportunities. 
but the river as a whole gets a little more difficult to wade fish midsummer just because of water water levels. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. We have. Uh, oh, good question. Talking about the Miracle Mile now. How hard is the rowing? Is it relatively simple? Or are there any dicey sections to watch out for? There's no uh, real dicey sections as long as you don't go way up into the canyon. If you put in below the canyon, basically in the in the boat ramps that are there, or if you happen to be out there where you see other boats putting in, put in there. Don't go uh, <laughs> upstream in the white water ahead of them. I wouldn't say it's dicey, but it is. Uh, it's not super friendly to a novice angler, and the reason for that's just the big boulders. You know, they're relatively easy to see, so. They're not super sneaky, but there is enough current, and in, in, in some spots, especially in a drift boat, if you're, you're not a real competent rower, it might not be the friendliest place for you because of those big boulders. Yeah, that was another question. That was from Trey Owings in Idaho, and another question came in from Charlie Morris in Longmont. He says, can you float it in a dory? Does it require a raft? So it sounds like you can do it in a dory, a hard boat, but carefully. That's all. Pay attention, right? Yeah, that's uh, no. correct. I would say, you know, almost probably, well, every guy that I know of that floats it does float it in a dory. Okay. But like yeah. I said, you kind of have to pay attention to some of those boulders. It's it's definitely not as easy to row as, let's say, the Great Reef stretch here closer to the town of Casper. It, You know, it's got some turbulent water to it, and, and those big boulders can kind of sneak up on you. But, but totally doable if uh, if you're comfortable rowing chances are you'll be fine. Okay. Uh, yeah. Charlie Morris, again, he's, he's got the questions coming in here. Yeah, that's <laughs> he awesome. Says, Are suck, he says, are sucker eggs the same color as a uh, trout egg? Good question. No, they are not. Sucker eggs are almost an opaque white. Huh? Yeah, they're almost uh, see-through white. So a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of people will fish a really faded, you know, a really faded yarny, almost a white you know, yarn, pom-pom sort of egg, or uh, obviously those fans that are of, you know, Alaskan-style bead rig uh, will fish a white bead. Yeah, another question came in, Treg Owings in Idaho. says, I stopped by the fly shop in Casper. They sold me whitish beads to pin and use. says, I didn't try them. Do you use those? Yes, we do use some of those. You know, in Wyoming, they are allowed, but there is some regulation that the bead has to be within two inches of the hook. That's a, you know, like many other topics in fly fishing, that's kind of a hot one, depending on, you know, who you are and where you are and that sort of thing. Different states have different regulations. But in Wyoming, that is allowed as long as the uh, hook was within two inches of the bead. And they really came up with that determination because of the average width of the jaw of a fish meaning if they eat that bead, the same time they're eating the bead, the hook is making contact with their mouth. So further than two inches, they consider it snagging, but inside two inches, you're good. Yeah, yeah. Is that a technique where the, the bead actually slides then after they eat it? or? Uh, yeah, there's kind, of two, there's kind of two ways to rig it. Trout beads is probably the leader in that arena. Some people will actually take a toothpick and break the toothpick off through the hole in the bead once they feed the uh, monofilament or fluorocarbon through the bead hole, and they'll break the toothpick off inside that hole to basically use it as a jam stop. Trout beads also sells like a 
almost like a rubber toothpick that kind of does the same thing. And then a lot of people will actually tie it in and tie it in so that it doesn't move. So they basically tie multiple knots inside of it, and therefore mm -hmm. it doesn't, doesn't have the range to move up and down, and that way they know it's not getting further from the hook than, than appropriate. Do you think that's a more effective technique than just a regular old, you know, a fly egg, you know, yeah, puffy one with the hook in it? I think it's probably more effective, but uh, again, we kind of go back to that. Some people just choose not to do it, and I it's totally not a fly, get it. right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I totally yeah. get that idea, and I also get the yeah. idea of people that you know, there's multiple studies that show that it's healthier on the fish because it hooks them on the outside of the lip versus the inside. Some people like to throw an otter egg, and other people think otter eggs are are horrible because fish will eat them and try to swallow them and you routinely hook fish in the tongue which increases mortality rates so you know it's kind of up for debate but but I do think side by side generally the bead is going to be a more productive technique than a yarn egg yeah yeah okay good another question came in here Brian and Vernal I guess that's Utah he says, is wind an issue in that area? But it's not, oh, right? yeah. Like, only when it's yeah. windy, though, right? Yeah. There's, yeah, there's never wind in central Wyoming. Yeah. No, we did not have wind today, which is an abnormality. Um, and, you know, it's somewhat unique. There is uh, some wind issues that can occur at the Miracle Mile, obviously a little greater in the spring and the fall and kind of the changing seasons sort of stuff. But, you know, at times the wind also helps too, right? Like today the river was dead calm, and it fishes oddly. It gets much more technical when it's dead calm. And there's kind of a, a nervous chop to the water or some wind to the water. It has some advantages. It makes the fish less spooky. It also moves a lot of food sources around, keeps kind of some of those calmer, dead portions of water moving a little bit more. So, you know, there's pros and cons to it. Like, we always joke around here that, you know, thank goodness it's it's windy or we'd have way too many people, right? So <laughs> wind's not always a bad thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So one more question about suckers, and then we'll move on. But uh, yeah. Treg, Treg is asking, do suckers spawn in the riffles? Suckers, they will spawn in the riffles, but more in the tailouts. They're really in between the runs and look for okay. a somewhat similar environment as, uh, as say, a rainbow trout or a brown trout. Uh, pea gravel, but they do have a tendency to spawn in a little faster water and a little larger gravel. At least in the Miracle Mile, almost a dead giveaway as to where the suckers are spawning is where the pelicans are working the water. If there's uh. pelicans flying around and if there's pelicans diving, they're trying to pick on those suckers that are trying to spawn. And uh, uh, kind of follow the rules of salt water there. If you see the right. birds working, head to that direction. Yeah, yeah, good yeah. tip, good tip. Any other uh, special techniques or recommendations that you would give for the Miracle Mile as opposed to the other stretches we're going to talk about? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely more stonefly based, so don't shy away from classic stoneflies like Pat's rubber legs, big Kaufman stones, that sort of stuff especially on the upper reaches of the Miracle Mile. As you get down into the slower stuff, at times it can get a little more technical just because the fish have a you know, a little larger window to kind of observe and, uh, and pick out bugs. 
but it's a real gem. And if you know any of your listeners are into switch rods or spay rods or like swinging big streamers for fish, the Miracle Mile is an awesome place to do that. It's got an abundance of crawfish, lots of leeches. Of course, you got all those suckers and baby suckers and baby carp. So it can lead to to some really effective streamer fishing, especially on a slow swing. It's not a great streamer fishery. If you think about Kelly Gallup's famous streamer techniques of, of big woolhead stuff or big deer hair stuff, it's not great in that sense, but it's really good on a slow swing if you think more like a crawfish or a leech. Okay. That's really okay. the ticket. Yeah. Oh, good, good. Okay. So let's move on and talk about the next stretch down from there, which is uh, Fremont Canyon. So is it just down the road, or how far between Miracle Mile and Gray Reef is, is Fremont? Yeah, so the Miracle Mile dumps into Pathfinder Reservoir, and from the Miracle Mile arm of Pathfinder to uh, Pathfinder Dam on the downstream side, it's about 15 miles. So Pathfinder is a large reservoir with kind of multiple long arms to it. It's not a big circular reservoir. It's it's very much an armed sort of scenario. And so on the downstream side of Pathfinder Reservoir is where you find Fremont Canyon. And it's still part of the North Platte. We often get people that get kind of confused as to the different stretches of the North Platte. They think they're different rivers. But really the Miracle Mile, Fremont Canyon, and Gray Reef are all stretches of the North Platte but obviously just kind of different segments of it. So Fremont Canyon is a unique one. It's um, much smaller in size. So there's actually a pipe out of Pathfinder Reservoir that runs into a hillside and runs down to an actual power plant on the bottom side of Fremont Canyon. And that pipe can hold up to 2,500 cubic feet of water per second. So, so Fremont Canyon is much more kind of wade fishing friendly most of the time, depending on water flow, but I would say average width of Fremont Canyon would be about the width of two lanes of traffic. So it's much friendlier than the you know reef or the mile as far as width for an angler that's not used to fishing a big western river. What about the topography around that? I mean, saying canyon, is it true canyon? Is it cliffy? Is it uh, big boulders that you have to climb around? Or what is sure. what is it like? Yeah, there's kind of two stretches to it. So the upper stretch right below the dam, it kind of goes through a meandering meadow, and that's Cardwell Public Access. The whole stretch is kind of called Fremont Canyon, but there's a big access point there, a parking lot. You can kind of walk down into it. And the upper mile and a half or so of it is kind of meandering meadow, super easy wade fishing. Often you don't even really have to get in the water. You can stand on the bank and fish all the big oxbows and kind of S-curves as it goes through there. And then after it goes through the meadow stretch, then it starts entering the canyon itself. And the, the canyon is kind of a hidden gem. It's a, most people don't really understand how big of a canyon it gets. So, you know, it starts out a little gradual, cliffs on either side, or somewhat cliffs on either side of, you know, 60 to 70 feet, and then quickly builds up to about 200 feet 200 vertical feet to the top of the canyon wall. And then as it goes downstream even further, it just keeps progressing. And you actually get a few points in there where the water is sitting almost 500 feet below the actual canyon top. There are a couple of trails that you can hike down into the canyon on that are kind of switchback-based, pretty easy to get around in. 
but most people fish the upper stretch of it in kind of that first mile and a half, two miles of water. That's okay. a little easier to get around in. Does that get crowded up there? It can get crowded at times, yeah. Just because it's so friendly for wade fishing, the size of mm -hmm. the fish is obviously uh, a big bonus. And so it does draw some anglers in. You know, in the winter months, it's a great fishery and, a, a, you know, less crowded in that sense. In the summer months, kind of the same thing, a great trico hatch in the summer. Not nearly as many people out there first thing in the morning. But it does see a fair number of anglers uh, midday just because of its easy access. It's only about, oh, it's paved the whole way and, and only about nine miles off Highway 220, so it's pretty easy to get there. But also uh, being, you know, a little more manageable as far as reading the water and width of the river, it's a little more manageable for some anglers that might have a little hesitation towards, mm -hmm. you know, larger sections. You mentioned size of the fish, so what is an average fish in that area, and is it primarily rainbows again? It is primarily rainbows again. There are, you know, some really quality brown trout and some cutthroat in there as well. Average fish is right in that 17, 18-inch category. Oh, um, but nice. It, it grows fish incredibly quick. There's, uh, you know, annually there's multiple fish over, you know, the 10-pound or near the 10-pound mark that make an appearance, and, and anglers are lucky enough to find. Nice, nice. Food sources in that upper stretch, what are we using there for, what are we trying to imitate? Yeah, it's got a little bit of everything, but it's a little more buggy than some of the other stretches. So it's got, you know, primarily rock bottom-based, it gets really, really good midge hatches. Like this time of year, we've got great bluing hatches going on almost every afternoon. And then it'll kind of transition into, uh, you know, bluing PMD and then caddis stuff in the evenings. At times it can, you know, in the summer months, if we get good grasshopper production, it can be uh, real beneficial to fish a grasshopper in there along with the trichos first thing in the morning. And at times in the fall can be a great streamer fishery. So it's got a little bit of everything to it. Okay, okay. Uh, any particular special techniques you use there? Is it standard just kind of dream fishing in the meadows area there? Yep, kind of standard. I think, you know, it, every run has, has quite the uh, changing environment to it. So the top of the run often will only be three or four feet deep, but the heart of the run is often six, seven, eight, nine, ten, even deeper. Oh, wow. And then it kind of shallows up again. Often, you you know, a word of kind of advice, I guess, would be approach every run and kind of break it down into segments. Often anglers make the mistake of just fishing, say, like a five-foot leader or a six-foot leader, and they kind of stay at that depth. And they're really missing out, especially if they're nymph fishing, they're missing out on uh, – the heart of that run, they're often kind of over the top of the fish, right, if they're on the bottom 18 inches. So it's a great place if, you know, anglers are into Euro-nymphing. It really lends itself to that technique quite well with the varied uh, depths in each run. You can kind of adjust uh, your rod angle up and down and, and make sure that you're kind of in the sweet spot of the nymphing side of things. But it does have some pretty drastic variations even in the same run as far as depths. Don't be shy yeah. about uh, changing strike indicator depth or adding more weight and trying to make sure that you're you're ticking bottom every now and then or getting close to bottom, especially in an nymphing rig. 
Yeah, yeah, really, it sounds like you're suggesting of breaking it down into just maybe smaller segments makes a lot of sense there. Treg Owings wrote in here on the Internet, he says, how about hoppers in the meadow? Does we have a good hopper season there in the fall? It can get a decent hopper season. I wouldn't say it gets as great as the Gray Reef stretch a little further down river. Okay. But it does get some really good hopper fishing when it happens. It's just mm-hmm. our hoppers at times can't be the most, you know, they're not necessarily the most consistent food source. Every summer it gets great, really great trico fishing first thing in the morning, and that's probably the most consistent dry fly fishing year in and year out. And then, you know, obviously some bluing stuff in the spring. Right now when we get some overcast or damp conditions and, and as well as in the fall with blue wings and pseudos. Okay. But the trico is probably the most consistent dry fly fishing that takes place. Okay. All right. Let me take another quick break, and we'll come back and dig into Gray Reef. So excited to talk about Gray Reef, so I'll be right back. Enrico Puglisi Flies prides themselves with creating unique and one-of-a-kind flies and tying material. Enrico has been experimenting with durable synthetic and natural materials to create flies that catch fish for more than 20 years. His innovative products include brushes, fibers, and components that have made a major impact on the direction of saltwater fly fishing, and his methods and materials are respected worldwide. Whether you want your flies hand-tied for you or would like to tie your own, be sure to visit Enrico Puglisi Flies and browse through their online catalog. Visit epflies.com and do a little shopping today. Again, that's epflies.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Blake Jackson about fly fishing central Wyoming. If you'd like to ask Blake a question, just use that text box on our homepage and uh, send your question in. We'll see if we can't get it answered. Got a pretty active uh, question and answer session going on here, Blake live coming in online a lot of good questions so that's great i love it when we do that question came in calvin manning richland washington what's your recommendation for location and size of fly when swinging streamers with a two-handed rod between mid-september and early october well you got a couple options there the gray reef stretch itself right below Reef dam like that first mile and a half of uh, public water is a great option and then the miracle mile is always a great option generally water drops a little bit and with some cooler nights some of the moss growth that we experience through the summer months kind of clears out and it's uh, it can be dynamite color wise we're somewhat unique here so the North Platte below Seminole we have no sculpins in this fishery so a lot of streamer fishermen approach the river with big deer hair, wool head sort of streamers, real wide faces to those sort of streamers. And being we don't have sculpins that that those streamers would imitate, uh, they're not the most productive. So when you're streamer fishing the Miracle Mile or the Gray Reef, really think more in line with white and flashy, kind of opaque white and flashy, cream and flashy to really imitate baby suckers and baby carp. And then also think about you know baby rainbows baby brown trout and the crawfish leech program as well a little more muted colors on that side you know I would say the two top selling top producing sort of streamer colors here on the North Platte would be 
a white and flashy streamer and a green olive and flashy streamer. That's really kind of the ticket. There's really kind of multiple of them. I'm somewhat biased. I have one that I really enjoy fishing and think I or I have a ton of confidence in it and, and it works well for me. It's called a ditch witch, which is pretty small and sparse, uh, both in a mini size and a kind of a standard articulated size. But almost all the streamers that, that produce big fish here, I would say 60 to 70 percent of our streamers that produce some of the largest fish of the year, usually on an articulated streamer and kind of in a small, slimmer mm. profile. I remember when we were up there year before last, I think was recommended to us were like a conehead woolly, you know, vanilla wood woolly booger kind of thing. Is that still yep. something that's it's effective? Exactly. Yep. Yeah. A conehead, like vanilla woolly bugger. That vanilla bugger really imitates a baby carp. It's cream okay. in color with like a badger hackle. So it really yeah. in the water looks like a, you know, with a gray kind of cone head to it. It looks like a, you know, a baby carp or baby sucker. And then another really solid streamer is called a Goldie, which is just white with gold flash, both in a standard conehead version and also an articulated version. And then uh, all the streamer called a Rusty Trombone, and then the uh, the Ditch Witch stuff, both in white and in olive, are very okay. effective. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, Gray Reef specifically. So this is the, the closest section to your home base there in Casper and literally just up the road from the Ugly Bug, and you have the lodge there on the Crazy Rainbows on the river, correct? Yeah, that's correct. So as we move downstream, we go through Fremont Canyon. Fremont Canyon dumps into another reservoir called Alcova, and then on the downstream side of Alcova, you go through a small stretch of river that most of us just call the After Bay through the little town of Alcova, and it dumps into one last little reservoir called Gray Reef. And below Gray Reef Reservoir is really where the Gray Reef stretch starts. And it runs from Gray Reef Reservoir all the way down through the city of Casper here and down to a little town called Glenrock. And in Glenrock, it hits a power plant, and that power plant has a tendency to warm the water up and below the power plant. Therefore, it's, it's not real trout-like conditions. The water temps are off, often too warm, I and mean, it's more of a carp-catfish sort of fishery at that point. You could maybe you can kind of give us a little tour down because that's a, a long stretch there. I mean, if you were to float from the dam down to Casper, that'd be a heck of a long day, <laughs> wouldn't couple, it? A uh, couple of days, yeah. So, yeah. So, there's really a, there's a couple of full day floats on the upstream side of Casper. So from Casper to Gray Reef Reservoir is about 22 miles by highway, but because of all the S curves and oxbows in the Gray Reef stretch. You're talking about 35, 36 miles of water between Casper and uh, the dam itself. The most famous stretch or kind of the most well-known stretch of the Gray Reef would be the upper 10 miles from Gray Reef Dam itself down to the first public takeout, which is called Lusby. And then below Lusby takeout, there's another takeout about four miles below that called Government Bridge. And those are both pretty historic, kind of legendary takeouts. Below Gray Reef Dam, you're entering public land for about the first mile and a half, and then you start dropping into uh, a couple of large ranches that flow through that or that the river flows through at that point. Again, they go back to those sort of markered signs for public and private. And 
yeah, basically uh, those ranches lead all the way down to Lusby and beyond Lusby down into uh, Government Bridge. So the reef's really known for its kind of easy style, kind of slow meandering water and kind of classic trout water. It's got all the riffles and drops and things you would associate a classic western trout stream of having. It also has some really long, kind of deep, trophy, slower runs to it that uh, hold a lot of fish but are a little more difficult to read as far as where you should be fishing. Generally, as a rule of thumb, especially if you're floating through that, you know, if you put your boat 10 to 15 feet off the bank and throw towards the center of the river, because most of the river is kind of a V-trough formation, there's really not a ton of depth against the river banks, especially when the water's low. You're kind of fishing more the center of the river than you are uh, fishing the banks like you would think of in some, some other fisheries. So uh, fishing the banks with streamers is not a recommended practice? It is recommended when the water's up, yeah. Okay. So this time of year, you know, generally our water is around 500 cubic feet per second coming out of the dam. And then in the summer months uh, and often into the early fall months, we'll have water between 1,000 to 2,500 cubic feet per second. And when we get, you know, a little higher water flows, that now makes a lot of those banks two to three feet deep and much friendlier for the fish to live in. When the water's down at 500, often the banks, one step in, you're only ankle deep, and you can often take 10 to 15 steps off the bank, and you're still not into uh, knee-deep water. So okay. that's kind of the reason fish generally are you know, out in that, that little bit deeper water for protection from birds of prey and all the other elements. Yeah. When we were there, uh, I think we were there the end of September, and you guys recommended that we don't fish that first stretch ab below the dam because of weeds, I believe it was. Yeah. So, so it's, yeah, you want to talk about that? Yeah. So much like uh, many other western tailwaters especially, we get some moss growth, and it's just something we kind of deal with and at times it can kind of work to your advantage in creating some current seams and food lines and that sort of thing. At times it can also be a downfall. There's times a year that, you know, by mid-September that that kind of mid-summer moss growth is gone. There's other times it sticks around depending on how cool the nights are getting. As the water temps low or water, uh, water levels lower and uh, water temps drop, that moss starts dying kind of breaking free, moving down river. And when that happens, then the upper reaches get better and better. But if that moss is bad, that first 10 miles of the river really gets impacted by the moss the most. So in the summer months, when that moss starts growing, we generally start moving further and further down river, closer to the town mm -hmm. of Casper, and even floating through Casper and below Casper at times. That same trip, we went from uh, Gray Reef up to Bighorn, and uh, Bighorn was just, looked like pea soup. It was terrible, terrible fishing, because <laughs> they have some kind of algae growth up there. Does uh, North Platte ever get that kind of growth? I know you probably know what I'm talking about, because you guys are guiding up there as well, right? That's correct. No, it doesn't get quite the same amount of growth. It does get some growth, but they're pretty much established moss beds. I mean, there'll still be a channel down the center, 
just makes wade fishing a little more difficult here on the Gray Reef. But, yeah, we don't get quite the pea soup aspect that the bighorn gets, but but we do deal with some moss issues. Yeah, yeah, okay. So the primary food sources change down in Gray Reef from uh, Fremont or Miracle Mile? They do a little bit, yeah. We don't have nearly the stonefly base down in the Gray Reef, so most of the Gray Reef, the bottom structure of the river, is uh, much muddier, which lends itself greatly to the crawfish and leech program. And then mm -hmm. we get great bluing hatches, you know, midge hatches, obviously the trico thing. And then the Gray Reef generally gets the best grasshopper activity of all the stretches. And, you know, the leech thing is kind of an underrated deal. When we got the current to really move leeches around, also in the fall when that moss is breaking up, a lot of those leeches are stuck in that moss, and as that moss breaks free, it then dislodges those leeches. And the fish, you know, I'm a big believer that the fish on the Gray Reef look at a leech as, you know, much like other fish look at big stoneflies, right? They're such a huge protein source, kind of a big, big ticket meal item. They really gorge themselves on them. It's not uncommon for us to catch fish that'll be puking up leeches because it's so overfed. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I got another question came in here. It says, uh, I had some great success a few weeks ago with butterscotch colored eggs, but and I think he's talking about uh, up there, Miracle Mile. But I'm intrigued by this, the sucker eggs, heading it back up there in 10 days. Any color recommendations? So we're yeah, kind of the, backtracking the Miracle yeah. yeah, so the egg program's pretty well going to stay in the trout family <laughs> until that kind of last week of May, first half of June, when the suckers start spawning. You're better off to stick towards that kind of egg yolk coloration, butterscotch coloration, you know, all the kind of classic trout colors. You're better off to stick to the, the rainbow sort of eggs until, you know, the end of May, first of June comes along, and then we'll, we'll start seeing some sucker activity. Yeah, yeah, okay, good, good. So fishing, you already divulged a good strategy, which is fish to the center to use that that kind of V-shaped bottom on um, in Gray Reef. Any other technique strategies for you know getting more effective results on that stretch? Yeah, I mean in the spring months, it's primarily a nymph fishery, and from what I see doing clinics and fishing with a lot of people, I think the biggest you know, kind of misnomer I see is guys will set up a nymphing rig at the boat ramp for an overall length, you know, of what they think the river might be. And they, they get kind of stuck in a rut and don't adjust leader length very often. Like in our fishing reports and many others, we'll try to give you a little hint, you know, saying run a nymphing rig six feet deep. And we're really talking about the distance from the strike indicator or your sight line or whatever you're wanting to use to help you detect a strike to the split shot or to the weight. Obviously there's different techniques in nymphing if you're running a you know, pogo rig or a polish rig or whatever you want to call it where your weight would be at the terminal end. But if you're running a classic nymphing rig, don't be afraid to adjust leader length because there's a lot of variety between the upper water that's a little swifter and you might need to add a little more weight to get near bottom up there and then the heart of some of those runs. There's many runs here on the Gray Reef that you might get to, 
you know, 7 to even 15 feet deep out in some of those trough. Adjusting leader length a little bit. I always, you know, as a general rule of thumb, I always tell people you want 20% of what of your strikes to be kind of false readings where your split shot's actually ticking bottom or bouncing hard enough that it's moving your strike indicator and you think it might be a fish. Generally, if you're not somewhere close to that category, um, you're either too light or you're too short. But I see a lot of people generally too short. They'll rig a five-foot nymphing rig and fish down the center of those troughs, and they end up just floating right over the top. of Right over the top, of yeah. What do you use for an adjustable strike indicator then in those situations so that you can change up quickly? I use a lot of different ones, but my favorite now is probably the airlock version with the little set screw in it. So you just okay. you know, yeah. take half a twist off, and you can slide it up and down your leader. But the corks are great as well. Generally, we're running heavy enough here that you need like a half-inch sort of strike indicator. You can't run much smaller than that. You can't okay. really run the pulse of press-ons, that sort of thing. But, you know, thing of a bobbers, airlocks, that sort of thing are all great. Just don't be afraid to move them around a little bit tinker with depth yeah. and weight. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you gave some very good tips on, you know, how to adjust that. I think that, I know personally, I think that happens to me a lot of where I'm not, I'm just not deep enough, you know. You think it can't possibly be any deeper, and yet they are. Uh, yeah, and so. that's probably one of the number one things we hear from clients. When we're rowing between runs and we lengthen out or shorten up because we know the next run is five feet deep and then the one after that is 11 feet deep, you know, they always kind of say, like, well, you know this place so well. Well, that's, yes, that's some of it. But, you know, a lot of it obviously is, our, you know, we're going to be much more effective if we're in the zone where the fish are at, right? So if they're eating leeches and crawdads and, and eggs, chances are they're in that bottom 18 inches of the water column. If they're eating yeah. blue wings and midges, that sort of thing, you'll find a lot more of them suspended than you will kind of near bottom. Yeah, and it always pays to have a guide <laughs> that knows the river, though. It uh, just seems like you're always more successful with a local guide. I don't care what yeah. river it's on. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I always tell people, even on your own, like always err on the side of heavy, right? Because if you know you're heavy enough that you should be hitting bottom and you're not ever hitting bottom, then obviously then you've taken one of the factors out of play. You know you've got to lengthen out. Yeah. And it, it generally leads to a lot more success. Yeah, yeah. David Bond in Colorado asked a question. He says, does the spring runoff affect the fishing? Also, is there good walk wade fishing, or is it mostly from drift boats? Yeah, so spring runoff does affect it a little bit. Our first tributary creek actually comes down in, so we're kind of unique. The, the whole left-hand side of the Gray Reef, once we exit public property, is actually all part of our operation. So we're one of those bad private landowner types that uh, don't allow people to wade fish. <laughs> but so about halfway down through that stretch of river, there's one tributary creek that comes in on the river right-hand side called Ledge Creek. So there's really only one tributary. It doesn't actually run year-round. It only runs on you know big snow days or a, a giant rain sort of situation. Then it'll pump some sediment in. Other than that, the next big tributary that comes in is about 300 yards above Government Bridge. So almost always, I would say almost always, probably eight days out of the year, you've got some water clarity issues on the Great Reef. 
but it's really, really rare. It really takes a big yeah, rainstorm or a big snowstorm to make it happen. Yeah, that's not much at all, eight days. Yeah. We had another question come in related to that. Fran in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, he says, when should we expect the spring runoff to be over this year, especially considering the winter snowpack and trending weather this year? Yeah, I wish I had that answer. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> okay. our, our, yeah, our runoff as of now has been really slow, which has been a good thing. It's been able to absorb into the soil. So we've had some pretty cool nights, and we're getting some big temperature swings where it's, you know, 22 first thing in the morning, and by 2 o'clock we're in the mid-50s. Yeah. So that's slowed the runoff down some, which is, you know, healthy for the, the overall environment. You know, because the gray reef stretch and that upper stretch fishes so well in the spring, runoff's really not a big issue to us. But, you know, it can be below Government Bridge. As of yet, it hasn't been, and I kind of wish I knew the answer going forward when we might see some mud or some sediment entering the system. But maybe we'll get lucky this year and we won't have, we really won't have to deal with it at all because it'll come off slow enough. Yeah. Another question from Charlie Morris in Longmont. He says he's going to be he fished. He says, I had the best guided trip I've ever had on the North Platte. And he says, I'm scheduled to go with Blake on the mile in November for streamer fishing. So, and Charlie's been asking a lot of these questions tonight. What yeah. the, this question he asked now is, uh, does Ugly Bug have private access that a client can pay a rod fee and go unguided? Well, thanks for listening, Charlie, and thanks for being so interactive. I sure appreciate it. Unfortunately, we do not allow private access. That goes back to the old story of a couple of people, unfortunately, can ruin it for the masses. Mm -hmm. uh, we, had, mm -hmm. we had a few folks that we used to do that with and some erroneous claims of, uh, you know, bank decay and some, you know, unsafe footing that we were kind of getting blamed for. So really from a protection standpoint, for us and our insurance and the business, we do not allow, you know, a rod fee to turn people loose. So we obviously use the private land to our advantage as far as private boat ramps and wade fishing opportunities, but kind of purely on a guided guided level and not on a rod fee level. Uh, he's also, I'll just kind of distill this down, asking is the ditch witch in the public domain, uh, is there a recipe or any instructions on tying that? Yeah. Yes, there is, and I've got some more uh, videos that should be hitting our YouTube channel and kind of uh, easier to find here within the coming weeks. So you can look at the pattern on our uh, system. It's really a pretty simple streamer. It's uh, marabou on the back end, polar chenille through the body, and uh, sounds like uh, Enrico is one of your sponsors here on the show as well. Right. It's uh, mm -hmm. some of Enrico's craft fur brush as a collar right behind the cone head which is an nice. awesome product. His craft fur brush is awesome. Oh, yeah, he makes some great products, that's yeah, for sure. sure does. Yeah. yeah, and let's see. Okay, here's an interesting question from Jim Budd, again, coming from the Internet. He's in Lincoln, Nebraska. He said, what should a customer do to assure an enjoyable experience with a professional guide such as yourself? Awesome question. Yeah. yeah. I wish more people would ask that. My, <laughs> yeah. my, my answer to that is is it's your money. So be upfront about what you're looking for. Most of us obviously want to provide, most of us when I say outfitters, we want to provide the best possible experience for you. And if you're upfront about it that, you know, 
it's me and my grandson coming fishing, and the, the importance should be on my grandson. I want him to catch as many fish as possible and fall in love with fishing. Generally, most of us as outfitters have someone on staff that might be a better teacher, right? Or we might have a hardcore angler that's way into streamers, or we might have, you know, all the different scenarios we can come through. But I think, you know, don't be afraid to ask those questions as a, as a customer. It's your money. This sport, you know, often hiring good guides is not a cheap thing, and it's totally within your right to, uh, to ask and really dig into it. You know, I think in a way the consumer has a little more power now or at least a little easier to gain knowledge because they can read reviews and kind of look through what's going on. But generally, I say trust your gut. If you call an outfitter and it just seems too good to be true and they're promising you the moon, and chances are he's probably lying to you, right? I hate to say that there's people in the industry that do that, but generally when things are too good to be true, they're, they're probably selling you a bag of goods. Fishing is fishing. At times it can be incredibly tough. At times it can be, you know, super unbelievable. But but I always say, you know, there's certain things within our control, right? We can control effort. We can still always be good teachers on the river. We can always provide a memorable experience. And hopefully the fishing kind of takes care of itself, right, if all those other aspects kind of fall into place. But I wouldn't be afraid to, you know, ask questions, tell them what you're after, ask them, you know, those detailed questions on like Charlie, um, obviously he's asking a lot of questions about streamers, right? And yeah. uh, to feel free to keep asking those questions. And if, if they don't kind of give you the answers you're not comfortable with, generally there's enough competition that you can find someone out there that, that's willing to provide kind of what you're looking for. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, and like he said, you know, don't let your ego get in, in the way of your learning, you know in that if you say, hey, I want to go out here and I want to learn how to be a better nympher, uh, at the end of the day, that's my goal. I don't, you know, really care how big the fish are or how many. It's, I want to learn more about nymphing. And then you'll get, get a good teacher, I suppose, rather than just, you know, kind of hiding in the shadows and hoping you learn something. But tell them where you're, where you're lacking, and I think you'll get a better instructional session because that's the way I look at it every time I go out with a guide it's like going to school <laughs> you know what I mean and can be really informative if you let the situation evolve to that so yeah, yeah I think that's really I mean for me fishing is about the people right that's uh really my joy in it and the information that can be passed from one person to the other I mean we can sit around and read books and do all kinds of stuff, but often in one day fishing with someone that knows what they're doing, you can learn more in one day than you can from a bunch of different resources trying to piece yeah. it together on your own. So the person-to-person -person interaction, I think, is is to me one of the things I'm most fond of when I think about think about fishing. Yeah, it's a hands-on sport, right? I mean, you learn yeah. by, by doing, you know. Yeah, you can totally. read all the books and not to demean any of the authors out there because there's some great books but until you actually do it it doesn't really stick at least for me yeah that's uh, yep. yeah yeah well listen we're running out of time but i do want to uh, just spend a few minutes because um wyoming's becoming known as a flats fishery right <laughs> so yeah. to speak and, uh, more why don't more. you talk a bit about about that what's going on up there yeah so we've we're presented kind of a unique opportunity here and and I think, you know, as a whole, the uh, 
the whole carp fishing scene, you know, at least in the U.S. and um, many other places, is growing quite substantially. And I think more and more anglers are realizing carp are a hell of a lot of fun. They're a riot of a fish to chase. You know, they're big, they're active, and probably more importantly, uh, they're readily available in almost every environment, right? You know, you can be in an urban area and find them. You can be in the mountains in a small reservoir and find them or a creek. So uh, we chase a lot of carp here. I'm totally consumed by it. I absolutely love it. It's a nice change of pace for me, and I, I've kind of gone all out. I chase them off a flats boat like you'd see down in the Keys chasing tarpon. We push around the shallows um, and chase both common carp and mirror carp, uh, both on the surface and and tailing, but primarily sight fishing for them, um, chasing them around on, on a lot of these reservoirs here. Pathfinder is probably the, the biggest one, and then also uh, Boyson over by Thermopolis presents some great carp opportunities, as well as Glendo on the downstream side closer to uh, Douglas and Wheatland south of us here in Casper. So they're a riot, and those that haven't done it, I would uh, encourage you to go do it. They're a hoot to chase. They make you a better angler all the way around because they're big and strong and, and can be picky and finicky and spooky, but that's part of the fun. And you're primarily sight fishing to all these fish, right? We are, yeah. So, you know, the mirror carp almost every morning are up on the surface, kind of filter feeding. Carp are kind of legendary for not being incredibly picky as far as the bug. They're really uh, resourceful feeders, so... They'll eat everything from cotton with you know cotton seeds to grasshoppers, calabatus, all the typical things you see on uh, flat water or still water. But they'll also eat you know a lot of leeches and crawdads, scuds, really whatever they can find they'll eat. So yeah, they're just a riot and uh, they're a great you know midsummer thing if water temps are hot and you have a hoot owl closure or a, you know not a great trout fishing in your area, the carp are are a, a fun species to target and you know half the time a kid's pond in your neighborhood or whatever has got some in it a lot of golf courses will let me go fish them that sort of thing so they're kind of fun in that sense you can usually find a fishery in almost any environment and have some fun any particular gear one would need to bring other than the normal trout gear for yeah usually a little stiffer rod seven and eight weights usually kind of the best bet both floating mm -hmm. line primarily a floating line and then uh, around here, bug-wise, a lot of, think of a hybrid, you know, there's specific carp patterns, but almost all of them are a hybrid crawdad pattern, tied bonefish style, if that makes sense. B-chain mm -hmm. eyes, not super heavyweight, and if you can get the hook to turn up, so meaning the weight of the eyes is tied to the top of the hook, so the B-chain or the dumbbell eyes is on the top side of the hook, Therefore, when you throw it in, the hook point will ride hook up, and the dumbbell eyes will ride hook down. It reduces your snag and bottom and that sort of thing, being that the fish are down in the mud eating quite often. Does the fishing, is it representative of fishing the flats and the salt? In other words, should you expect a constant breeze? Should you practice, you know, casting and, and wind? Is it yeah, similar? that can be a thing. Around here, we generally get really calm winds midsummer. We kind of work in reverse. The days that you would like kind of a nice breeze because it's so hot, it's usually dead calm and kind of baking here in the high desert. So um, okay. we do get some wind at times, and, yeah, practicing in that is great. Really the carp, a lot of my clients that fish it, 
are fishing it really for saltwater practice, right? The closest thing mm-hmm. I can compare it to would be, you know, red fishing, but a little bit more bonefish style of red fishing. Often the fish are, you know, down digging in the mud. You can see their tail up above the water line kind of flapping around. They give you some indication as to where they're at, and then it kind of becomes technical. You're trying to make a specific spot cast and, and present the fly, uh, you know, just to the left or the right of the fish's mouth. And the real secret there that I've found, you know, there's a technique kind of called the, the drag and drop. So if you cast, you know, five feet beyond the fish and five feet in front of, let it sink down to the bottom. And then the way the carp's eyes are orientated on their head, they really see to the left and the right. They don't see straight in front of them all that great. They use their barbels and kind of feel around for food, but they don't see straight in front of them much. So if you let them get right up to it and then kind of tick it like they just surprised a crawdad in the mud, they'll usually pounce right on it. And then the fun begins. you got a 15-pound fish on you know, a seven weight. It becomes a, <laughs> yeah. a real battle. Yeah. What kind of success do, you know, a guy coming up there who's a decent trout fisherman and never tried carp before and you're fishing them from the flats boat, what kind of success do you usually have with those kind of folks? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's obviously a wide variety between, you know, wind and general fishing sort of conditions. But I would say on a, you know, on an average day, we're boating somewhere between 5 and 20 fish a day. Average is probably okay. more like a dozen sort of fish to hand and a few others that eat and break off or, you know, you yeah. know trout set instead of strip set, all those other odds and ends. That kind of <laughs> yeah. Place. But, yeah. Yeah. but generally it has a higher success rate than what you would see in a saltwater scenario, right? Okay. Um, and because of their how prolific they are, your opportunities to cast to them is much greater. It, I mean, there's a lot of days that we might cast uh, 50 or 60 fish, but just the nature of carp, they're kind of picky, they can be spooky. And so, right. you know, there's going to be some failure that's tangled in there quite often, but that's also kind of part of the fun. Yeah, now when you uh, take a couple of fly fishers out on your – and you have flats boats, right? That's um, correct, yep. Yeah, so you uh, do you switch off between the fly fishers just as you would in the salt kind of trade-off turns? Exactly, yep, yep. Yeah. We'll often, know, you know, one angler fishing at a time and we'll flip-flop back and forth. And then many of our flats provide opportunity if the fish have pushed up into the shallows enough that we'll jump out of the boat and, you know, walk around in chin-deep water and and wade fish them as well. Cool, cool. Very good. All right, Blake, it's getting late. We've got to finish things up here. So stick with me for a few more minutes while we wrap it all up. When we return, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. And we'll also be giving away a a dozen of Blake's hand-picked flies for the areas we talked about tonight. So stick with us a few more minutes, and we'll do just that. Fly Fishers International needs your support. Its conservation projects at both the national and club level are addressing critical issues of importance to fly fishers. The organization provides grants to help with restoration of habitats like Wolf Creek in Idaho and Sands Creek in Delaware County, New York, and funds projects that collect valuable data about fish and their habitats like the peacock bass study in Miami, Florida. 
FFI's core values remain unchanged, to serve as a strong advocate for fly fishing in all waters for all fish, to preserve and to promote the arts of fly casting and fly tying, and to help ensure future generations can continue to enjoy these one-of-a-kind experiences. These efforts won't be nearly as effective without your help. If you're not already a member, we invite you to join Fly Fishers International as they work to cultivate conservation, education, and community within the sport of fly fishing. Join Fly Fishers International today and help support their fine work. For more information, go to their website at flyfishersinternational.org. Again, that's flyfishersinternational.org. And just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what do you think of this show? Just click on that link and leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. And before we give away these fine prizes, Blake, I neglected to give you an opportunity to talk about your business up there in Casper, Wyoming. So uh, take a minute or two here and tell us about the ugly bug and the crazy rainbow. Yeah, yeah, thanks for that. So I think we covered a fair bit of it. Uh, we're, you know, an outfitter based out of Casper, Wyoming, fly shop in downtown Casper called the Ugly Bug Fly Shop, and then we have another little fly shop out at our lodge. We like to refer to it as the little bug around here, but a uh, little <laughs> fly shop out there. And then we have a couple of lodging options, a main lodge as well as a, a river cabin that we rent out to clients, um, of cook on staff and kind of run a full-service operation, so we do a little bit. We're also, you know, connected to the Gray Reef Ranch, which would be the upper kind of nine and a half miles of the Gray Reef section of uh, the North Platte, you know, allowing us walk-weight opportunities and private boat ramps and kind of avoiding crowds, putting on ahead of everyone sort of thing, which is a, a nice little luxury to have. And then we operate uh, some float trips over on the Bighorn as well, outside of the town of Thermopolis. We like to think of a, a great little online store at the Ugly Bug here. You can get online and check us out there. We sell just about everything fly fishing related. And then we run a little destination operation as well. We chase, you know, some exotic fish in exotic locations, everything from, you know, Mongolia to the Yucatan to uh, Chile, annually, uh, Bolivia. We get around there a little bit and, and like to chase some fish in other places as well. Yeah, other than that, just willing to help out anyone and everyone. We like to pride ourselves on the there's no stupid question sort of thing. Got a great, great staff here and a couple of just rock star ladies that help me out quite a bit. Addie Dees, my shop manager, is a wealth of knowledge and kind of a, a leading female in the industry as well and uh, a ton of knowledge there. And, and we've really expanded our uh, women's operations as of late. So. This year we've got uh, four weeks left of kind of a all-inclusive educational weeks that we put on primarily for women. We have a couple coming up for men as well that are three four-day courses, three and four-day courses uh, based on, you know, taking you from kind of beginner angler all the way to uh, competent enough that you can go out and read water and figure it out yourself. So, yeah, if you ever have any questions, Great. you're more than welcome to reach us at crazyrainbow.net. CrazyRainbow.net. What an operation. <laughs> you guys uh, keep yourselves busy, that's for sure. It's yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. Terrific. Well, thanks, Blake. So let's give away a few prizes here. We'll give away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And our fire up the database here. We do a, a random 
search through our registration database. And if you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show on how to uh, get you connected with your prize. So we just does a, a random selection here. And the winner for that is Robert Cambrusia. Cambruzzi. Robert Cambruzzi, and he's in Colorado. So um, Robert, uh, I hope you enjoy your membership to Fly Fishers International and everybody else go join uh, you just heard their ad here and a promotion on them and I'm sure you'll you'll find that uh, they're a great organization so go check them out congratulations Robert and now we'll give away a one-year subscription to fly fishing and tying journal and you can learn more about that at amatobooks.com check them out and they have uh, several periodicals on fly fishing as well as uh, numerous books on uh, fly fishing as well. So uh, check that out. So our winner there is Bob Younger, Bob Younger in Indiana. So uh, Bob, congratulations on that and I'm sure you'll enjoy your subscription. So now, uh, Blake, let's give away a dozen hand-picked flies and see if we can get somebody that was uh, paying attention we just had a Roland from Albuquerque writing, great show. I love the focus on one river system. I fished North Platte last year and had an amazing time. Very informative broadcast. Looking forward to my next trip up. So that's a pretty nice uh, review. Oh, yeah. And Roland, please do that in our review section. Put that in our review section. I'd love you to copy and paste that over. It would be great. So here we go. When we talked about the the section in the upper section of Fremont Canyon, Blake mentioned that it was really known for its dry fly hatch. Which bug were we was Blake talking about there? Which bug? Okay. And whoever gets that correct here in its first, then they'll win the dozen flies that Blake hand picks out there. And um, so let's see here. Takes a second because there's a slight delay between when we talk and when they hear us. And then, of course, we've got uh, typing. So uh, we're talking about the dry fly hatch on the Fremont Canyon. And let's see here. And it looks like we've got a potential winner here. This is David Myers in Morrison, Colorado, and he says Trico, and that's what I was looking for, right, Blake? That's it, that's yep. correct? That's it. So, David, congratulations. Send me your mailing address. Got your email address, your mailing address, and your phone number. Use the same box that you just answered the question in. So I just need a mailing address, and I'll send that up to Blake, and uh, Blake can send you those flies. Unless you'd like to go up and pick them up at the Ugly Bug, that's always an opportunity to <laughs> and uh, go fishing with Blake. So you let me know. Just fill out that form, you know, same form. Let me know what you want to do, and we'll uh, we'll take care of it. So thank you so much for uh, the folks that joined in the um, in the prize giveaways tonight and answering the questions and paying attention. Looks like there's many more answers coming in right after that. Lots of correct ones. So you've got to be fast when we do this. So, so thank you all for playing. Blake, I uh, really appreciate you being on with us. I know it's getting late up there, but thanks so much for sharing all your great knowledge with us and your experiences. And uh, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll see a bunch of our listeners up there fishing the North Platte. And thanks again.
Thank you. All right. Hopefully you've all found the podcast archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link in the top line menu. It says Podcast Archive. The archive, you'll find all of our past shows, over 330 shows, which you can search by a keyword, keyword phrase like trout, tarpon, Madison River, and so on. So go ahead, explore. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised by what you discover. Our next broadcast will be on May 5th at 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. You can check it out on our homepage. And it's going to be the Driftless Area of Wisconsin with Jerry Meyer. Jerry has been guiding the Driftless Area since 2006. She was fascinated by the 13,000 miles of Driftless Trout Creeks, many of which flow through over 5 million acres of public land in Wisconsin. The last ice age left the Driftless Area with fractured limestone and sandstone, and water percolates up through this rock into the ground and is filtered, cooled, and given an excellent pH level. The water then comes out as springs and seeps and gives us an incredible and abundant trout fishery there. So listen in to discover the secrets of this one-of-a-kind fishery. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Lee's Ferry Anglers, Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing, and Enrico Puglisi Flies for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.